Hey friends, before we dive into the show, I've got something for you. Fellow doctors, entrepreneurs, professionals, busy people in general. Sometimes getting a meal in is difficult and we miss it. It happens, but we need to fuel our body with what it needs to be productive. And let's not forget, eating is important to look after our basic health. I want to tell you about Y Food. It's a balanced, simple and wholesome ready to drink meal. Yes, meal. That means it does keep you full for about five hours, making sure you don't become unproductive or hangry. But also it's packed with 26 vitamins and minerals and a whole 33 grams of protein. They're not joking about when they say a meal. I've dropped their link in the description with a 10% discount code. Check it out. Let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Professor Chand, who is a practicing robotic and laparoscopic surgeon working at the London Clinic and University College Hospital. He's also involved in tech um, within healthcare. I'm talking about the super cool stuff, machine learning, AR, XR. Not only that, he's published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles and has various roles within and outside medicine absolute pleasure to have you on the show today prof how are Welcome you to the show uh, thanks a lot guys it's a real pleasure um to join you this morning um yeah fantastic looking forward to it no worries Amazing. so it may seem like an overnight success i was looking at your linkedin in awe and thinking he smashed the arms you know <laughs> he's done what we wanted to do um but we we know it didn't happen overnight there's been a lot of obstacles i'm sure in that journey but if you don't mind, Prof, do you mind taking us all the way back to the very beginning of when you decided you wanted to embark in this journey within medicine? Sure. Um, I think um, I am of a generation of um, surgeons, doctors, who as um, second generation um, were sort of cajoled, probably is the wrong word, but certainly directed very forcefully towards medicine uh, very early on. <laughs> And um, I think other than medicine, I think the only other professions that were really um, open to, to, to the community in terms of doing well at school and, and going in that direction um, were probably law and accountancy. Uh, and mm -hmm. even banking at that time was actually a, um, a, a little bit of a, um, well, people didn't really know what banking entailed and, and it would be the sort of avant-garde that would, would go for that. But they were the traditional three subjects and, and perhaps even engineering to some extent as well. Um, mm. And when I went to med school, I, 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 I knew that I wanted to be a surgeon quite, quite soon because I looked at the various specialties that were on offer. And of course, you follow things on TV and, and film. And I mm. thought that surgery is the one that, that really stuck out for me. But I was very much involved in, in sports as well. And, and I played sport at quite a high level um, from the age of about eight until certainly 17, 18, and then into university. Mm. And, and I felt that there was always a kinship between sports and surgery. And that's something that I've tried mm. to develop over the years. And that's now actually worked itself into my, into my research as well. But, but yeah, I think when I started on early at a medical school, I very much threw myself into the surgical specialties and um, probably to the detriment of, of attendance and um, <laughs> an actual an actual commitment to the other parts of the medical curricula. And in those days, you, you could sort of do a bit of a correspondence course. So it wasn't really <laughs> like it is today, where, where there's far more 
um, scrutiny on attendance. But um, but no, it was a very enjoyable journey. But I always wanted to do surgery, and, and I didn't know what type of surgery, but just some sort of surgery. So we know you are kind of super focused in pursuing surgery, even at medical school, deep into your sports. But did you do things outside of that general academic stuff within medical? Well, actually, to be perfectly honest, um, I, I spent a lot of my medical school days enjoying myself. Um, and that's partly <laughs> a reflection of the fact that I went to a quite a strict um, school, um, not quite military discipline, but certainly a very disciplined school for 11 mm. years. Um, and going to university in London, and I lived in the intercollegiate halls at the time, that certainly um, was a very new way of life for me. And I think it is important, regardless of what degree that you do, that, that part of that process is, is learning as an individual, gaining independent thought, mm-hmm. independent decision making, um, and learning from, from the mistakes that you will inevitably make. And, and I think that was important for me, perhaps more important than developing my CV further at the time, which in the back of my mind, I, I probably knew that I had some time to do in the future, mm. but, but I didn't want to pass up on those opportunities that I thought would be beneficial to me during medical school years. No, definitely. Do you think that nowadays, due to the, the pressures, uh, the competition and everything, that most med students are now having to sort of focus down because they're all now having to give up all those extracurricular things to you know to do research publish attend conferences and then build that portfolio rather than you know how you're talking about um the sports helps you discover yourself the other societies that might uh, help you take up leadership positions yeah absolutely i mean in my mind sports in particular which has played a strong part of my life played a strong role in my in my life the teaches you lots and lots of different skills from leadership to teamwork, um, discipline. And and I think Mm. I agree that the curriculum as it stands and what I see my junior colleagues having to do to progress to the the next rung of the ladder does feel like Mm. it becomes a, a a tick box exercise. And you become so focused on ticking those boxes that you are missing out on other opportunities that may make you a more rounded individual, allow you to explore some of your interests. And you might find actually that your interests lie away from medicine, away from surgery, Mm. and you haven't had the opportunity to explore that. So whilst the purpose of doing this is is to narrow the curriculum down so you focus in on your specialty and become very good at it early on, I think the the trade-off is that you lose a lot of those opportunities that perhaps mm. that you may have explored because you feel as though, look, I need to get on and do this. Otherwise, someone else is going to do it before me. Mm. No, I'm Absolutely. glad you, you've mentioned that and echoed that. I think um, a lot of medics, especially as so knee deep into the books and research and this and that, they forget to realize that medical school is also a time of university where you are supposed to have fun. So you get through med school, you're still interested in the surgery. Tell us a bit about training. As soon as you graduate, that feeling, how did life change for you Yeah, then? sure. So the, the, when I graduated, there was a certain pathway for surgery. And that pathway was getting something called a basic surgical rotation, which meant that mm. you did SHO jobs through the different surgical specialties. And ideally, if that was affiliated to a medical school, that would again be another badge of honor. Um, and there was mm. also the 
um, prestige of doing a demonstrator job, anatomy demonstrator job. And those were particularly sought after at Guy's and at Oxford and Cambridge. So Mm. I thought that both of those routes were something that I wanted to do. So I had a basic surgical rotation through King's College Hospital. And I did the anatomy demonstrating job at Oxford. And I then became the neurosciences tutor at um, Balliol for um, actually seven or eight years after that. And used to drive up to Oxford from London during my SHOs and even registrar years to continue teaching tutorials at um, at Balliol um, thereafter. So, So that was the traditional route. And, and then you lined up, as it were, in order um, and waited for someone to give you a registrar number, um, your nat- nat- national training number. And you knew there was there was a sort of order and a pecking order. And, and when you completed various things, you would invariably be, be recommended for it. But at the same time, um, the new training scheme came in, the whole... Um, the whole MMC MTAS situation, mm. and and that mm. very much changed things. And and I was fortunate to to sort of get through that. Um, but a lot of my colleagues who had waited their turn and, and would probably have made very good registrars um, at that point just got lost in the system, and either um. took them a great many years to get back into the system, or they just fell out and had to do other specialties or other careers. So. I think for us, there wasn't quite the box ticking exercise that you mentioned. It was there were certain things that you needed to do, a few publications here and there, learn mm. how to do um, certain operations and do certain jobs. Um, and that would help you. And there was a little bit of word of mouth that would help you along with mm. that. Mm. Um, and that's really where I was. And I suppose at that time, I was very sort of middle of the pack. I mean, I had these prestigious mm. jobs, mm. but I just you know, was thinking, let me just get onto the registrar years and and then Mm. find my interest. I don't think I'd really discovered what I wanted to do within surgery at that point. And when you Mm. don't have a passion, it's very difficult to to then throw yourself in at something 150% of the detriment to everything else in your life. Um, Absolutely. And and yeah, I think I think I just hadn't really discovered what I wanted to do until I became a registrar, actually. Hmm. So that was my follow-up question was within surgery, which is broad, how did you discover kind of general surge, upper GI, laparoscopic robotic? Tell us about that part. Sure. Of well, there was no robotic surgery at, robotic, at, at yeah, the time doctor, and laparoscopic yeah. was um, relatively new. We're talking about the sort of early 2000s uh, at, at the moment. Hmm. So um, I did, um, the, the nice thing about doing the basic surgical rotation is it allowed you to go through different specialties and see different things. And I think at the time I had wanted to do cardiothoracics and I went to meet various people. I went to meet um, Stephen Westerby, who was um, famous for inventing the Yarvik, the the artificial heart in Oxford, speak to him, speak to um, others and and realized actually that cardiothoracics probably isn't for me. Then I thought of Mm. orthopedics and did some important orthopedic jobs. And after experiencing those jobs realize that actually yes it's a very good specialty but it's probably not for me and in the end Mm. i fell into general surgery more that there were specialties within it Mm. that i didn't have to make my mind up about 
yet <laughs> uh, and it was a very last minute thing I, I it was only a few days before the applications went out that i filled out the general surgery registrar application form and what i liked about general surgery was that within particularly the gi specialties there was a mixture of medicine pathology radiology mm. surgery so it felt very multidisciplinary um that you mm. weren't just doing the procedures and I did like the um, intensive care part of it, the physiology part of it, the medicine part of it, the, the oncology part of it. So I thought that this is this is a specialty that I'm sure I will be able to find something in. But I still hadn't set my sights on anything in particular in terms of specialty or type of surgery into my mm. you know first second year of being a registrar probably. Amazing. A quick question about your training years now. We all know about the hours that the the old guard put in back then. How did you manage sort of, because right now, I would say the same as well, the current trainees, they're putting in a lot of hours, a lot of graft, even out of hours, even on annual leave, getting into theatre, etc. How did you balance your extracurricular activities, life outside medicine, family, friends? How did you do it in a time when you guys were doing even Crazy. more, even more cool. hours? How did you manage so, all of so that? So I, I think it almost felt easier then than it is mm. now. Um, mm. The hours were, were certainly longer. Um, and with that meant that the opportunities were, were more. So um, you didn't have to come in really on your spare time as much as perhaps you may think you do now because there was a lot more going on. So during the day, mm. things just seemed to be more efficient. When I look at the theater scheduling now, and when I look at what we get through in a day now compared to what we got through 20 years ago, we got through a lot more mm. and mm. it just felt more efficient. So you had more opportunities in the same, well, even during the same hours, but our hours were extended. So you got to see more. Yeah. And True. And we didn't really have to we didn't really have to come in on our spare time our life pretty much in those early years was living in the hospital working in the hospital hanging out our friends were mainly those so we we sort of lived and worked and often dated many of the um, mm -hmm. people that we worked with they were our family and friends and and partners etc mm -hmm. and but it felt fine and we were all used to it so i think the realize mm -hmm. Our expectations perhaps were different. We knew what we were getting ourselves into. So it wasn't as if we started doing this and thought, oh, well, I didn't really think that I'd be here at midnight on a Friday when I was supposed to finish <laughs> at a certain time. We knew that that was it. We, it was drummed into us mm. and took the jobs mm. on expecting to do that. Now, whether that's right or wrong mm. is a different matter, but at least it meant that our expectations weren't, there wasn't a surprise element in it. In terms of yeah. outside the hospital, I think that was difficult because what you'll find of that generation in particular, many um, of my colleagues and, and more senior than me are often partnered up with other medics, people they met during the hospital, mm -hmm. because life outside the hospital was relatively non-existent. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and in terms of doing extracurricular stuff, yeah, you'd have to find time to do it. It was difficult to do anything else. I mean... You used to see a lot of tired-looking junior doctors walking around, um, mm. but yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, they were more fulfilled and probably more happy than they are today, because that's what yeah. they had chosen to do. That's what their expectations were, and they knew that. Look, at some point, 
in the coming years, things are going to change because I could see that there were seniors and, and say, look, when I get to these years, it will change. So mm. it's something that we, we had decided to get into and we enjoyed the yeah. job for what it was and we were getting fulfill, fulfillment from the job, but it was difficult. And, and I can say, you know, from a personal perspective, I had a partner for several years who wasn't in the medical world. And unfortunately, mm. it came to a point where um, our lives just differed too much and and mm. and that ended up being the sticking point that led to the that led to the end of that relationship um mm. because of those mm-hmm. years now i would hope the way that the system is set up now that that kind of thing doesn't happen and people are able mm. to live a life outside the hospital or outside the general mm. practice or wherever they may be working because that is a real shame that that we were so focused in 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 what we were doing, yeah. and and we would have missed out on on opportunities, meeting people, meeting friends, and and pursuing our extracurricular mm. activities. Mm, absolutely. So, the question I had during this kind of pathway of training to towards consultancy, or even now, did you ever have any mentors that helped you, guided you? Um, and what do you think is the importance of having mentors within medicine? Well, look, I think mentorship, um, mentorship and support in any industry mm. is hugely important. This is not specific to medicine. And whether you want to call it coaching, mentorship, whatever you want to call it, mm. it, it is hugely mm. important. And we're seeing in every industry that that, that is now becoming um, front and centre. I think it wasn't as structured and as formal as perhaps it can be now. I think it is, mm. you know, hugely important that that young surgeons, young medics, uh, or whatever industry you may be in, find a mentor. And that mentor doesn't necessarily need to be in your institution, in your specialty. It can be, you know, it could be someone in another country, but someone that can give mm. you a balanced perspective of what's going on someone that perhaps is a few years older, doesn't have to be 10, 20 years older, but just someone that has tr- trodden that path and, and can give mm. some pointers because I see it too often now. Um, and, and it often happens to people actually in their 30s, I find, whereby a second wave of focus suddenly comes along. But I must mm. do this and I must do that. And you get obsessed or people get obsessed in in chasing career and ambition to the detriment of everything else. And I can tell you as someone that's, you know, come out the other side of that, and, and certainly what my senior colleagues would say, is that you need support around you. And mm. the most important people around you are those good friends and family and partners. And, and you shouldn't in any way take that for granted, which a lot of us have done in the past uh, and and a lot of you will do unfortunately because mm-hmm. they are the people that will always be there and you are replaceable in whatever you do there is no job mm. that you cannot be replaced in you are replaceable what's not replaceable are your family friends partners etc and you realize once you've gone through that phase of of what you think is accelerated growth and come out the other side and you plateau a little bit and you're feeling more comfortable where you're at, you don't have to run around so much, you realize like, hmm. where are all my friends gone? Where are all that, oh. Where's that support network gone? And you realize they've gone because you didn't perhaps appreciate that, that your self-serving behavior meant that you pushed other people away. 
So, you know, my mm. strong advice is find a mentor and a coach that that can explain this to you. Make sure that you're grounded. Make sure you keep perspective. Make sure that you realize that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And that way, mm. when you come out the other end of these different phases of your career, mm. you realize that you didn't throw one thing away trying to pursue something else. Yeah. No, definitely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that. The something just occurred to me um feel free to answer or not is is it lonely at the top and what i mean about that is i remember a, a reg said it when you're a surgeon when you're a junior you kind of all the juniors and the regis sit together at lunch but as soon as you become a consultant all of a sudden the juniors shy away from the consultants they never have lunch with them and you always see the, the consultants sitting in a chair or a table by themselves have you experienced that and what do you think about that sure i think the the in surgery, unfortunately, it starts a lot earlier than that, which okay. is often why mm. junior doctors um, that are coming through and deciding what to do feel more at home with medical specialties because there's more camaraderie. Mm. Um, this, yeah. you know, mm. if you are doing a medical specialty, often you will have a team structure where you're with the registrar and the SHO and you all go for coffee and you'll yeah. go for lunch, yeah. etc. because you're doing ward rounds together, you're doing clinics together. Surgery, you break off much earlier in that. The SHO will break off mm. because they will have things to do, running around doing X, Y, and Z, and then have mm. to go to the theatre. The registrar will just go to the theatre, may come to the ward infrequently, and the consultant that you may only see once a week. So, so yeah. I think that fragmented nature of how surgery works means that often junior doctors, when they're looking at specialty and looking for comfort, say, actually, look, you know, I, I much prefer the safety and the comfort of a medical specialty where there is more camaraderie. Um, mm. Yes, I mean, I can't, you, you basically stop having lunch with the team, as it were, when you're a registrar. Um, so yeah. mm. I think at that point, because your life and your working day is very different, and becomes yeah. more, you become more unique in what you have to do. So by the time you become a mm. consultant, yeah, I mean, most consultants have lunch by themselves, but with a yeah. surgical registrar often will be having lunch by themselves as well. Yeah. Uh, and that is no. to some extent lonely, but it's something again that, that you get used to very quickly and probably mm. because mm. You're, you're so busy in what you're trying to achieve that, that you don't notice it as much. When you do notice it, mm. as I said, is once you've gone through that phase and you reach a point where you think, I'm perhaps not quite as busy as I was. And 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 then you look around and say, actually, this is a bit of a lonely job to some extent yeah. um, within the hospital. Mm. And, and then you find your ways of, of, of trying to, 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 to manage your time and manage, you know, how, how you live your life. But... But yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. it, it can be. And I think that's important to realize before you go into whichever specialty you go into. Mm. Yeah. What's your what's your forecast for the future of surgery in a sense that the millennial and the Gen Z traits, right? So looking for that camaraderie, looking for enjoyment in a job rather when, when they weigh up, say, the money, the financial compensation versus the reward, the, the, the happiness in a job, they often tend towards that. What's the future with with surgery, we're seeing a lot of posts and social media tweets about how rough it can be and a lot of people switching, a lot of people quitting. Um, does it bode well? Do you think no with the innovations we've got coming out? 
it's actually going to get better only uh, what's your forecast well look i think it's it's a very um interesting time in terms of workforce prediction projections and and expectations mm-hmm. and again and i'd say that that not just for medicine for every industry i think there has never been a time when doctors are as similar to any other profession in their expectation mm. demands what they want out of life as i said before there was an expectation mm. that you lived a certain you'd chosen a certain path and these are the pros and these are the cons and these are almost non-negotiable yep. but yep. you made that decision and you went along with it and if you didn't want to do mm. that you learned very early on that this is not for me and you would find an alternate career of which there were very few in those days to try and drop mm. into something else with your skill set and and move on. Mm. Today the 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 upcoming doctor of today is no different from any other industry. They have expectations of a work-life balance, mm. financial reward, satisfaction. They don't want to have to travel, you know, 150 <laughs> miles across a deanery from one job to another every six months or a year. <laughs> and, and it's never been so so similar with other with other jobs which mm. again is in 2022 probably the right thing what mm. i would say though and you mentioned social media and and i do find particularly on platforms like linkedin um and instagram and others that there is this unrealistic um theme of expectation that people are often given we've all seen the dangers mm. of social media in this poor girl's case that's now coming up for um yeah. for review um today where yeah. social media is essentially an echo chamber and yeah. your phone and your computer and whatever is listening to you in your apartment knows what you're thinking so if you go yeah. onto instagram and you have been talking about something to your friends you will find spookily that the stuff that you see on Instagram or LinkedIn is or Facebook is somehow related to what you were talking about the price surprise <laughs> so whatever thought process that you're in you can see that on the algorithms on these platforms and what i what yeah. i find particularly irritating is that these kind of themes prey on people that are already in a vulnerable state of mind. Now I'm not saying that our mm, junior yeah. colleagues are in a vulnerable state of mind, but sometimes they show unrealistic expectations as well. Mm-hmm. And it's important perhaps then having that mentor or coach to give you some balance out there. All of this self-serving yeah. behavior thing that you see on LinkedIn by these so-called influencers etc. I mean this is unrealistic. Why am I going to listen to someone half my age? who is telling me <laughs> that I should basically throw away all my family and friends and then walk off barefoot into the distance to look for happiness. I mean this is madness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Madness. But, but, you see but somebody it, looking you see for that happen. answer will look at that and go I knew it. That's what I needed to yeah. do and it might be that that pushes <laughs> them into doing something silly. So mm, I yeah. think that, that these things are 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 all are all need to be taken with a pinch of salt. but i do think that that doctors in this day and age should expect to be able to live a life which has a balance to it a life that is appropriately mm-hmm. remunerated and allows opportunity as we spoke of before to live a life outside medicine 
And mm. Mm. I don't think doctors by any means are necessarily financially motivated or greedy in any way. They just want to be appropriately respected and remunerated um, mm. in a way that allows them to do a job that they're all interested in doing, but yeah, also I'm, means absolutely. that they can have a family, they can um, have a life outside work and, and enjoy their lives and not feel as though they're a slave to the system. Whether I think yeah. that will happen. And the mm. difficulty is, is that on the one side, you have a struggling and a failing NHS that is creaking, as you know, um, and mm. that requires service provision. And you have mm. that with fewer doctors, fewer nurses. So how do you resolve that situation with providing the balance for the workforce? That is the, that's mm. the difficulty. And I don't know what the answer no. is to that. But in the current guise yeah. that we have it in, mm. which, as we all know, the NHS works on a huge amount of goodwill, that goodwill yep. is eroded. And I think yeah, now absolutely. the problem, you know, saying to someone, oh, can you stay for an extra few hours after work? <laughs> you might do it once, you might do it twice, yeah. but you're not going to do it as a routine because people no, just absolutely. do not have those expectations anymore. No, definitely. Absolutely. On the topic of social media, we discovered you on LinkedIn um, and you got many accolades. You're always kind of sharing the new tech, the stuff you're involved in. Tell us about that decision. It's very few, it's, it's maybe more popular now, but early on, it was very rare to see consultants, individuals, you know, of your grade on LinkedIn, social media. Tell us why you decided to kind of share content on LinkedIn and why it's so important as clinicians. So the social media movement in, in medicine started almost a decade ago in earnest mm, mm. and myself um my good friend and colleague from cleveland clinic stephen wexner um mm. uh, julio mail from madrid um and a few others very much latched onto this early with mm. twitter primarily and mm. what we found very quickly that this was a way to engage um other professionals other peers um other um other doctors around the world, nurses, healthcare professionals, with immediacy. We didn't have to wait for peer review of a publication to pass information on. We could get information okay. out very quickly and we could let people know what's going on. We could connect the world through this. And we wrote several mm. papers at the time on various hashtags. I think one of our most highest cited paper is something called hashtag colorectal surgery, in which we had created an entire community. Um, and that allowed people to, to join in on Twitter and meet people and engage with people and have conversations with people. I mean, to in this day and age, you can connect with anyone you want in the world. And those barriers have been broken down um, in mm. and outside medicine. The days of being able to go up to the professor of surgery, you know, as a medical student, who the hell did that before? You'd have one who yeah, wouldn't have say. the opportunity to do that. And even if you did, you wouldn't get close enough to do that. Whereas now yeah. you can just ask a question on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever, and you'll probably get a response from most people. So it allowed this way of connecting people and breaking down some of the geographical and, and hierarchical barriers that we've had mm. in the past and proved to be a really good thing to begin with. Uh, and we all, mm. it was exponential growth. 
Everyone was using it. And then we realized, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. There's, there's some responsibility here that actually a few of us that have a number of followers and um, have some degree of social media influence are essentially setting the pace and, and dictating things to a certain mm. degree. And who's governing us? You know, we could pretty much say what we want. And mm, yeah. not just us, anyone can say what they want. So then we realize that actually there needs to be some guidance and some rules around this. And also, you know, how we present ourselves and how we conduct ourselves. You know, there would often be bickering between colleagues publicly on yeah. social media mm. forums. And that's not good. That doesn't show professionalism. So we very quickly came up with a set of rules in effect that this is how perhaps you should conduct yourself on, on social media mm. and try and use the platform honestly, transparently for dissemination of information. And and we use it very differently. It's not a marketing tool as such for us. And, and most mm. of our usage of social media is really for peers rather than mm. for patients. So if we are then realizing that actually, but patients are also looking at this as well. So I think it was trying to understand that landscape, which was very much unregulated and still to a certain extent is, and trying to mm. understand how we can use this beneficially, but also without upsetting people or without um, using our influence in, in, in any kind of negative way. So, so that's so a Twitter pretty much is now used for educational dissemination, I would say. Yeah. LinkedIn's mm. different. LinkedIn's more for professional networking. So mm. my posts on LinkedIn versus Twitter are often different. My posts on LinkedIn mm -hmm. are more about industry-related things, things that people outside yeah. medicine would be interested in, um, some of my thoughts and philosophies in general about, you know, healthcare and where healthcare is going or technology. That's very different from my Twitter posts. And so my Twitter posts are more mm -hmm. to do with dissemination of a paper or dissemination okay. mm. of a conference or, or something like that. So, so I, think, I think the two often are separated. But as, as you know, being part and on the editorial boards of many journals, all of the journals are super keen on having a presence on various social media platforms because yeah. it allows people to realize, you know, rather than waiting for that paper copy of some journal in the coffee room, you can look yeah. on your phone and say, look, these are the papers that came out this week. So we all develop strategies with the journals so that they mm, yeah. have the maximum amount of exposure to, to the information that's coming out. No, definitely. Um, and that kind of brings us on to the next topic I wanted to discuss was at what point in your career, or were you always interested in technology? I know you were keen on sports, surgery. Where did kind of innovative tech come into your, your life? Have you always been interested in tech or is it after you became a professor? Sure. Thought, hey, so you know, so cool. when I finally decided that I, what I wanted to do as a registrar in surgery, which ended up being colorectal surgery, um, okay. I sort of did it and, and, and I don't want to be facetious about this. I wasn't really in for the sort of 10, 12 hour operations. <laughs> I didn't want to be, and and I and I liked this laparoscopic stuff that was coming in, which which made things okay. feel a bit like a computer game. Uh, and again, you know, hand-eye coordination from sports, from playing computer games. I thought this is yeah. for me. You know, I, 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 this is a mm -hmm. different set of skills, 
uh, not necessarily any better or any worse than open surgery, but they are a different set of skills. Understanding um, how to present anatomy and present pathology on the screen so that you can access it and cut it and excise it, that is a very different skill from being able to do that in open surgery with your hands. Mm. Yeah. And and I realize that, that technology plays a huge role in this. And I could okay. see the similarities between gaming and laparoscopic surgery very early on. And as robotic surgery came mm. in, even more so. So it really sparked an interest. I did my PhD at the time in imaging, and I could see where imaging was going as, as well. Mm. So I thought imaging, gaming, all of this fits together. And actually, there is also this sports theme running through because these are videos. Mm. And what was I doing You know, when I used to try and improve my, my swing or improve you know, as a team, we were looking at other teams playing. What were we doing? We were looking at videos. So I thought video yeah. analysis and video coaching comes into this. So I thought there was a real theme between sports and how we train and how we prepare for sports using technology and the kind of technology that is finding itself into the training and execution of surgery. So to me, it will all fit mm. together. And once I'd come to the end of my surgical registrar training and decided I wanted to be an academic surgeon with a university post rather than a hospital post. I knew that this was the kind of theme that I would need in my research. And, and that's what led into it. Looking at what was mm. happening and the trends that I could see in medicine uh, or surgery at the time and where that was going and what I saw the next 20 years of research being. Because you know, the other side of, of important research at the time, you know, genomics and stem cell. Yeah. And I wasn't a lab based kind of guy. I wanted to be out mm. there and doing things first in man, that kind of stuff. And I wanted to be working yeah. with, mm. with, you know, other industries and learning from them. And some of mm. the collaborative work now that we're trying to do with Sony and PlayStation 5 yeah. and, um, you know, Sony owns VAR and owns Hawkeye technology. Mm. So we're trying to now think about how we can incorporate Hawkeye into video coaching and, and surgical training and how I can mm. use the new PlayStation 5 VR headsets that are coming out into surgical training. Surgery. And with that, how do we incorporate that into robotic curricula and maybe think about some of the... I mean, the, the, the work that we were doing with touch surgery and now that I do with CSATs, this is all video coaching. And, you know, video coaching has yeah. been around in sports for years. So so we've got an interesting webinar that we're developing soon that I'll be hopefully doing with Tim Henman and Sony mm. and, and oh, wow. AWS, perhaps, um, as um, trying to bring all those themes together as a an, a, in mm. a broadcast format to, to see, look, if, if, I'm, if I'm a gamer and I'm playing online with people. I don't I don't want a lag of any time at all. I want my movements on the controller, which is wireless, to be transmitted onto what I can see, and then that be broadcast to wherever in the world with no lag so I can interact with someone else. Now, you can yeah. do that seamlessly with a PlayStation 5 game. The level of detail in gr the latest Gran Turismo game for the cars is phenomenal <laughs> yeah. why are we messing around with transparent boxes and used instruments <laughs> with a laptop screen to try and train ourselves with 
laparoscopic surgery. It's madness to me, absolute madness. These guys <laughs> have got immense experience in making these games. These games are simulators. Yep. Mm. Yep. Why mm. can we not develop a simulator that looks like what we're doing in surgery? It's not rocket science. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Talking about boxes, you're thinking really outside the box now. How does how does an opportunity like that come to fruition though? Because you're talking about surgery and using words like Sony, PlayStation 5. If you, the average medic, the average surgeon, actually all medics and all surgeons are thinking, hold on, they're two separate entities on two different corners of the earth and you're trying to intersect sure. that. Well, well, the interesting thing is, is that they're not because Sony, as you know, make great televisions and and they make screens mm. actually make screens for the laparoscopic devices so sony mm. is in healthcare you just don't see it mm, with the yeah. name sony on it but sony is well embedded mm. into healthcare amazon well embedded into healthcare all data analytics yeah. all data cloud based systems pretty much in every industry but certainly in you know there's only two systems really that you can use it's either you use the azure system or you use aws but for yeah. any kind of cloud-based system, you're using Amazon. And then you're thinking about video-based coaching. Well, you know, I used to, my good friend, Jean Neme and digital surgeons, the touch surgery guys, um, mm. you know, we were working with them and helping them develop some stuff early on. And they've obviously got a fantastic product now. That's all to do with video-based coaching. Yeah. And mm. so, so these things are all embedded and, and going on. The question is, is how do you get involved in it? We well, get involved in it yeah. by, yeah, there is an element of thinking out the box. And yes, there is an element sometimes of people come to me rather than me going to them. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, it, it, it's, it is in what we do. We use screens mm. all the time. We use simulators all the time. You know, we, we, we are using this technology and it's about trying to find those opportunities where there is some degree of synergy and you can work with these companies um, and develop important products and develop things that, mm. that make a difference. And that's really the, the, the key. It's not about just saying that, oh, I've got some technology, what do I do with it? First mm. defining the problem and saying, look, I've got a problem here. And my problem here is that training in robotics or laparoscopic surgery unless you're in on the robot or you're in an operation is not very good that's the problem mm. how do we make it better well we can make it better with x y or z what are the components of that and who do i need to go and speak to so it's defining the problem and then going and looking for the technology not yeah. getting the technology yeah. so I'm, I'm not sort of reverse engineering it and sort of saying that look you've got a great technology here how can i apply it it's I actually got a problem here and you've got the technology mm. for it now how do we work together mm. yeah no definitely absolutely i think agree. the way you're doing it is right the way i was forced of it was juniors even registrars are so caught up in the surgical process itself where they're not thinking laterally and fair enough i'm not a surgeon whereas kind of individuals like yourself the consultants the professors do have the time and ability and the bandwidth to think outside the box and think all right we can change this and tweak this i was going to say how receptive are your colleagues because i know there is this resistance to the uptick of tech right um so interesting to hear the discussions you may have had any kickbacks from your yeah so, so i think this is where there's a um very well established and an excellent professor at imperial called george hannah 
um, and mm -hmm. uh, George and I have become good friends over the years. Um, and he said to me once that when you're building an academic unit or an academic program, you need something called critical mass. You then you can't do it alone. You need people like you, because if you don't, you'll keep coming up against problems and it'll take you time to get over those problems. If you have a critical mass, you will be able to, you know, surmount those problems very quickly with thinking, you know, you know, three heads, five heads, 10 heads are better than one. Hmm. We do have a huge problem in healthcare in general, particularly surgery with a very much, this is how we've always done it attitude. Hmm. And that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. We live in 2022. I often give a presentation and show a graph of automation and mechanization during mankind since the 1500s. And you see an increase of that during the Renaissance period as we head into the 20th century. And you see how um, machines and, and industry came up. And then from the 1950s onwards, it's all about computers. You look to the 2000s mm -hmm. and you think, wow, like 25 years ago, there was no Google. There was no internet. There was no this. There was no iPad, iPhone, all of these things that we use on a daily basis. And what have we done in healthcare in 25 years? Nothing. We're still trying to work out <laughs> laparoscopic training 25 years later. Yeah. In a in box. A box. Um, so, so I think that is difficult. And I am seeing a whole generation now of younger healthcare leaders that are, that are beginning to realize, much like myself, that you need to involve and engage other industries in this. You cannot mm. do it alone. Mm. And you cannot just say, well, we're going to figure all of this out together. You can figure out how you're going to tackle your waiting list in an individual hospital, in an individual department on your own. But you can't mm. figure out these bigger problems on your own. And yes, mm. I've yeah. come up against, much like many of my colleagues, um, I've come up against resistance every step of the way. People are like, oh, it's not going to be. I remember mm. pre presenting fluorescence years ago. People are going, what's this? You know, mm. who's ever going to use this? Now everyone uses it. You know, <laughs> I, I remember presenting MRI in the States. You know, we should use this in rectal cancer to stage patients. People are like, what's this MRI thing? We can just look at it and tell. I'm like, what? <laughs> look at it and tell. Yeah. MRI <laughs> tells you objectively what's going on. Like, no, we don't need yeah. it. So, so all of these things eventually come into, into practice, but you do need to have a support network so you keep going and you don't get disheartened. Um, yeah. and, and there is a real problem, or has been, I think less so now. We're seeing the Royal College of Surgeons and other institutions now very much embracing technology, very much embracing yep. how we can do things more efficiently, do things better. Because mm. often these things, after the initial outlay, in the longer term, they provide a cost saving and efficiency saving yeah. when you when you begin yeah. to automate things and you begin to to, to, to to mechanize things. So, yeah, I mean, there is resistance, I'm afraid, all the way along this. And that's why you need to have forums, mentors, coaches to help get you through that. That's that's very, very important. Can't do it alone. No, no, definitely. Absolutely. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up is you're also involved in kind of med educational platforms online. You're the CMO of the IS channel. Tell us a bit more about that role, what it entails, um, and how do people kind of get involved in stuff like that? Well, I think that's that's. I think the AIS channel was one of the real um, 
revolutionary products that came out in the last decade for mm. medical training. It really mm. is, and you know, it's the Netflix of surgery in effect is how it started. Mm. And alongside showing, turning conferences into, you know, well before we were doing these kind of webinars and Zoom things, we were broadcasting conferences live, but doing mm. it in an mm. entertainment sort of format where it was a bit glitzy and it was a bit glamorous and 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 it looked like it was something that you'd want to watch out of interest and entertainment not necessarily because yeah. I'm learning something and it made learning yeah. fun and it made learning modern yeah. and we were able to to still have high quality educational content but in a format that became much easier for people to digest over the years, that's evolved, and there's many verticals of AIS from an online university, training programs, accreditation, um, to lectures, um, residence corner, um, ask the experts, but also, more importantly, a AI-driven platform for the videos. So let's say you wanted yeah. to watch a video of a bariatric operation and you started loading that up, much like YouTube and Netflix, etc. the platform will show you other content that you might be interested in. And, mm. and it's the largest video repository by far. So my job yeah. as, as CMO, the chief medical officer, is to continue to promote innovative ways of building content within the platform mm -hmm. and engaging the users. It's all free, so there's no, there's no cost yeah. for the end user. But also curating that content and, and making sure that that content is high quality, it is the latest material that we want to show. And it just shows mm. another example, demonstrates another example of learning has become flexible, it's become on demand, yeah. and it's not about I've got a lecture on Tuesday morning and that's the only time I've got to look at this. The work that we're doing with um, some of our virtual reality partners is we've built the first VR-based surgical degree. And with that, mm. you've got all of your online didactic content on the platform. You've got live mm. lectures from the avatars that will beam up and you will watch them do a live lecture or a live tutorial. You've got live surgical mm. procedures that you can move to the screen, to, to the cinema side of the platform, and you're there watching a live robotic operation. And you now can do it from the comfort of your own home. And mm. the VR mm. headset is your, is your university. That is your, yeah. your campus. Put the thing on it. Everything is there. All the resources that you need are on the platform in the suite. As soon as you go on and see the suite in front of you, you can pick out whatever you want to do. And, and that is the modern way to allow people from every country, regardless of resources, we send the headsets out. So you don't have to buy the headset. Mm. And mm. you can then access things like the AIS channel. You can access high quality educational from the ORs of University College London. You could access mm. lectures from the professor of surgery at Cleveland Clinic. You know, th this is the modern way of doing things. But yeah. we need to do it with our partners. And our partners are people yeah. like Sony or HTC or, or our, you know, our um, VR platform, 8Chili or ARUVR. And, and we're beginning to see that, that this is a huge opportunity for us as we strive towards building the world's first metaverse-based um, mm, degree mm. where there's a digital twin of us in effect you know we can give lectures as our avatars and you join mm. we can see everyone in the room 
So, so, so th- this is what we're building towards, and this is what's coming. So, those that say that it's all a bit gimmicky and it's just for gamers, it really isn't. It really isn't. And yeah. if we continue with that thought process that this is just for entertainment and social pastime, etc., then we are losing out on a huge opportunity to make your and my education so much better and and allow it to be done in a way that we also don't compromise our family time our out of work time and we can do it on demand no definitely i think it's incredible and you're right i was going to say i think it's far gone past the phase of it's gimmicky it's not for medics i don't know if medics had like a bit of snobbish mentality towards (laughs) it all but clearly there's benefits that need to be yielded from it um the last thing i wanted to ask from you prof was you've had such an incredible career thus far what advice would you give to juniors to reggies that are listening to this podcast that may want to follow similar footsteps to you so my advice would be um certainly try and have five-year plans of what you want to do what are you going to achieve between the age of 25 and 30 30 and 35 35 and 40 professionally but also you know what are the kind of things that you want to do outside work as well and by having that sort of structure it allows you to have goals to work towards. You may not necessarily achieve all of those goals, but it allows you to work towards something. The the other thing that we mentioned already is that have a mentor or a coach or someone you can talk to. It doesn't have to be on a weekly basis, but someone that you can just talk to and gain some perspective outside what you're immediately doing. I would be wary of social media platforms evangelizing about the perfect life or the perfect this or the perfect that because you know i i really find that kind of thing you know i I think that's dangerous and that's one of the real um cons of of social media that it preys on people that are willing to listen to some of this nonsense and yes of course there is some good advice out there but there's plenty of clickbait stuff which, which I think is 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 horrible um, and should be avoided and mm. regulated in some way. Keep your family and friends around you. Certainly don't take them for granted, particularly when you're being focused, you've got exams or you're in an accelerated growth part of your career. And take time to enjoy some of it because it very much is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you, you, mm, yep. you're not going to achieve it all in a few years in your early 30s or your mid 30s. You know, it's good to look back, you know, when you're in your 60s and 70s and think, you know, what did I do and did I enjoy it? And what you'll invariably mm. find from those senior colleagues of ours that are in their 70s that are, you know, retired and, and look back, they say, I should have stepped back and enjoyed it a bit more. And I should have actually taken mm. time out to spend a bit more time with my family and my friends. And, mm. and, there is that chasing your ambition, but it's not at all costs. You know, if you yeah. go chasing ambition in that self-serving way, there are costs. So, so I would certainly yeah. take some balanced perspective and a coach or a mentor, a sensible coach or a mentor, unbiased, will, will often give you that perspective. Um, and the last thing is to say that, look, think outside the box. If you see something, if you're looking out the window and seeing, oh, that looks interesting on some feat of engineering or, or some piece of technology that you've seen, try and think, how can I apply that in what I do? Is there a problem that that could that, that technology could help me solve? And, and that way you can bring in 
this multidisciplinary approach of trying to make things better rather than just thinking, you know what, what do we got in the lab here? You know, what, 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 what have we got in the, in the surgical department that we can think about gluing together and, and, and doing yeah. this, that or the other? No, thank Amazing. you. Amazing. I think that so was much. good advice, not just career, but <laughs> life in general. Uh, no, Prof, we want to thank you ever so much for taking the time out to have this conversation with us, sharing your story uh, and our listeners as well. I think um, when you go onto your LinkedIn profile, when you see it, you just see all the achievements and you fail to realise the hard work and effort and time it took to get there. Mm. Um, but no, thank you for sharing that. Thank you very much, guys. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um, this morning. And um, yeah, look forward to chatting again sometime soon.